Let's, there was a certain man who went to his cardiologist and his cardiologist ran the tests and came out and uh, said to the man, I'm sorry, things don't look very good. Your cholesterol is way too high and you've got several arteries that are 40% clogged. You need to make some changes and you need to make them now, starting with you need to stop eating red meat. The man said, no problem. He went home and immediately he stopped putting ketchup on his hamburgers. <laughs> None of us like change, do we? We don't like change. We're creatures of habit. I don't think I've ever met anyone that says, hey, I really, really love change. We don't come across those people. Honestly, we are creatures of habit. Most of us have our morning routines and we've got our bedtime routines and we've got our routines in between. Uh, most of us eat the same thing every morning or drink the same cup of coffee every morning and we brush our teeth in the evening before bed at the exact time in the exact order as we do all those other pre-bed routines. We're creatures of habit. Some of us don't even get rid of our, our socks and our underwear that have holes in them because we don't want to change. We're creatures of habit. Well, listen to what Albert Einstein said about change. He said, the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. Ouch. I guess according to Albert Einstein, I'm a moron. Because sometimes I do not like to change. Listen to what Sidney J. Harris, a journalist, said about change. He said, our dilemma is that we hate change and love it at the same time. What we really want is for things to remain the same, but get better. Isn't that so true? We want things to remain the same, but at the same time, get better. Well, I imagine that the Christians in Antioch would have said much the same thing. Last week, we took a closer look at one of the most successful Christian churches in the book of Acts. That church there in Antioch, it was firing on all cylinders. At that point in time, they were the only Christians on the planet who were regularly sharing Christ with everyone, not just with the Jews, not just with the Jews and maybe some Samaritans, not just with the Jews, some Samaritans and some God-fearers who basically practiced Judaism to the best of their ability, even though they weren't Jewish. They were sharing Christ with everyone, anyone who would listen. And so we looked at that example of the church in Antioch last week. And remember what we saw in verse 21 of Acts chapter 11. We read, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Then Barnabas, the son of encouragement, showed up to help lead and strengthen that church. And we read down in verse 24 of Acts 11. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. By any measurement, Barnabas' ministry in Antioch was a home run. It was absolutely successful, but he knew that the Christian's growth would be stifled if he tried to do it alone and didn't get a partner to do ministry with him. So remember, he traveled 150 miles to Tarsus looking for the Apostle Paul. He found him and then he brought him back there to Antioch, and together they led the church and taught the church for an entire year. We read this in verse 26 there in Acts 11. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 
Revival had broken out in the city. The Holy Spirit was uh, drawing hundreds, possibly even thousands uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit was working through Barnabas and Saul's ministry in a powerful, amazing way. Together, they were baptizing and teaching hundreds, if not thousands of these new baby Christians They were preparing them to serve and lead in the church. They were preparing them to go out and and make even more disciples for Jesus Christ. They were bringing so much glory to God. And I can just imagine a group of Antioch Christians coming out of a worship service during that time and saying to each other, this feels like heaven on earth. I never want it to end. They were experiencing One of the most wonderful experiences any Christian can ever go through here on here on planet Earth. God invading our Earth with a powerful touch of heaven. Well, they didn't want it to end, but a big change was coming to their church. And the question would be, how would they handle that change when it comes? Well, we're going to go ahead and open together Acts chapter 11, verse 27, uh, picking up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 27. And we're going to see here that God is going to bring to the church the first big change as he sends Paul and Barnabas on a mini mission to Jerusalem. Picking up in verse 27, we read, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples each, according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. May God bless us as we study his word today and apply it to our lives. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul are being used by God in this amazing way. They're leading groves to, to a saving knowledge of, uh, of Jesus Christ. They're taking those hundreds, if not thousands, and discipling them. Uh, they're just doing amazing ministry. And these great numbers are coming to Christ. These great numbers are, are, are getting discipled. And during that year, a few special visitors arrive at the church in Antioch from Jerusalem. They had traveled 300 miles to spend time with the Christians there in Antioch and were told they were Christian prophets. Now, take a quick look at this map we looked at last week. Now, we read those words that came down from Jerusalem. That kind of strikes us as odd because Antioch was north of Jerusalem. In our minds, it looks like they came up from Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem was perched on top of a small mountain. And so whenever someone left Jerusalem from a Jewish standpoint, that person went down. Didn't matter if they were headed north, south, east or west. They were going down to wherever their destination was that they were heading. So they went down 300 miles from Jerusalem there to Antioch. Now, there's a lot of confusion among Christians today about what it is that prophets did in Bible times. So I'll give you the short and sweet answer to that question. Prophets in Bible times, it boils down to these two things. Number one, they proclaimed God's instructional word for today, a.k.a. his forthtelling. And then number two, they proclaimed God's predictive word for tomorrow. A.K.A. foretelling. 
Now, which of these two gets the most attention today when we talk about biblical prophets? Obviously, foretelling, number two, gets more publicity and more press today. That's what we like to talk about. Okay, They predicted the future and, and the prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. Several hundred were fulfilled by Jesus Christ to the smallest detail. And, and that's an amazing, amazing sign that the Old Testament was, in fact, inspired by God because he's the only one who knows the future. Right. And so that foretelling is a beautiful thing, but make no mistake about it. When you hear of biblical prophecy, the primary messages, the main messages, the majority of the messages that prophets spoke were foretelling. They were speaking to God's people a message for today, not a prediction of what would take place tomorrow. And so when these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, Certainly much of what they were doing, probably most of what they were doing was forthtelling. They were proclaiming God's truth to the church at Antioch. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so God spoke through prophets to relay his timeless word to a church. And so they were forthtelling. But at the same time, we know from what we read here in Acts 11, that at least one of those prophets by the name of Agabus was doing some foretelling letting him know about a famine that was coming to the land. And so we could say it this way. Prophets tell you what God's will is and teachers tell you how to live it out. Prophets tell you what God's word is and teachers tell you how to live it out. Well, according to verse 28, Agabus comes to that church and on one occasion, when he's ministering to the church at Antioch, he does some of this foretelling. He stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God spoke through a prophet in this powerful way because the Holy Spirit was all over this church in Antioch. Remember, they're experiencing revival. So the Holy Spirit's moving left and right. He's empowering everyone, regardless of their spiritual gift, to be able to exercise that spiritual gift in some amazing, life-changing ways. And so, so much is going on during this revival. Remember what we talked about last week. Antioch's experiencing one of the greatest revivals going on in the world at that time. Drunks are getting sober. Sex addicts were turning their backs on temple prostitution and getting saved. Pagans were trashing their idols. The Holy Spirit was moving in a big way. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit was speaking to and through the prophets in that church and preparing them for the days ahead. And what happens here in verse 29, I think, is so significant, so significant. As far as we know, this is the first time in church history that a special offering is voluntarily taken to help Christians hundreds of miles away. So think about that for a moment. As far as we know, first time in history, a collection is taken to go hundreds of miles away. And catch this. The offering is collected before the Judean Christians asked for help. That collection is taken even before they have the need that will prompt them to ask for help. They didn't even know a famine was coming, but the gift was on its way anyway. Truly remarkable. That's Christian charity at its best. Meeting needs. Even before a brother or sister in Christ shares his or her need, meeting needs 
at times even before the person knows he or she has a need. If you think back over your Christian life, many of you can probably remember a time where someone came up and said something like this. You know, I just really feel like the Lord laid it on my heart to give this to you. And you receive it and you're kind of blown away because maybe you didn't even know you had that need yet. But within a day or two, all of a sudden you need what that Christian just gave you. It's like God was speaking to him. Amen. Because God works in amazing ways. I don't think I'll ever forget. It's about 10 years ago. Uh, one of the men at our church came up to me on a Sunday morning and he says, uh, Dane, I'm going to buy you a, a, a new set of tires for your car. I'm going to buy you four new tires. I didn't even know I needed new tires for my car. And I I said, well, thank you. I don't think I need them. He says, no, I think you need them. And I went out there and looked at my car. I hadn't even noticed. Yeah, my tread was a little low. And Christine and I were going through a tough time financially. And that was a godsend. God, I believe, had laid that on his heart. And he met that need. It was a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It was about four years ago. I took a group of our teenagers uh, to Texas, the Houston area, to do some disaster relief uh, for a family that had their house severely damaged after Hurricane Harvey. And I remember a week or two before we left on that trip, one of the, another guy from our church came up to me and he gave me several hundred dollars and said, I want you to use this on your trip. You're going to have expenses and I want you to use it for whatever you need on the trip. I didn't even realize until we were on that trip we were going to have these extra expenses I didn't anticipate. Uh, those are just two of, of many, many examples of how God has laid it on the hearts of men and women and sometimes even teens and kids at our church to be a blessing to another Christian, to meet a need, oftentimes before that need was even expressed or realized. God just works in amazing, amazing ways. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 through 8, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that in all things, at all times, Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We serve an awesome Lord and Savior, don't we? We sure do. Well, here in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, I believe we discover yet another reason why the followers of Jesus there in Antioch were called Christians first. They were cheerful, generous givers. They were giving to others in need even before the needs arose, even when those in need were 300 miles away. And God loved it because God loves cheerful givers. Look at verse 30. After collecting the special offering, the Antioch church entrusted it to Barnabas and Saul, who delivered it to the church elders in Judea. That would have been a 600-mile round trip, so my best guess is that trip probably took them a couple months at least. That would have required the Christians in Antioch to make some changes, to make some adjustments, because Barnabas and Saul were a critical part of their leadership team, but they seem to have made those changes while anticipating Barnabas and Saul's return. Well, that was Barnabas and Saul's mission to Jerusalem. Now, please turn with me a couple chapters to the right in Acts chapter 13. We'll take a look at Barnabas and Saul's next mission 
It was a much larger, a much longer, much more important world-changing mission. I'm calling this the mission to the world. And so we're going to actually pick up at the very last verse of chapter 12. Join me in chapter 12, verse 25, and then we'll tackle the first three verses of chapter 13. Here we go. Acts 12, starting in verse 25, says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who has who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, takes a one-chapter detour in chapter 12 and focuses during most of that chapter on the apostle Peter. But once he gets to that final verse of chapter 12, uh, the remaining chapters uh, here in the book of Acts, I think it's uh, about 16 chapters or so remaining after this, uh, focus on Paul and his ministry. And so there's that shift that takes place from a Jerusalem-based mission field to an Antioch-based mission field. The launching pad changes, as we saw last week, from Jerusalem to Antioch. After Barnabas and Saul finished their mission of charity in Judea, they returned to their home church in Antioch, but they brought someone with them. We're told there in the last verse of chapter 12, they brought with them a young man named John Mark. John Mark, we read in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, as being Barnabas's cousin. So Barney, as he's down there in Jerusalem, picks up his younger cousin and talks him into coming back with him and Saul to join him in the church at Antioch, and he'll start that next missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Notice what it says in verse 1 in chapter 13. There Luke lists for us the names of the leaders in the Antioch church. And let's take a quick look at these five leaders that are called out here in verse 1 of chapter 13. We've made a list here for you and put it on the screen. Number one is Barnabas. We know him pretty well by now. Remember, his given name was Joseph, but he was nicknamed by the Christians in Jerusalem Barnabas, which means son of encourager. This guy was super encouraging. He's probably the most encouraging guy you could ever meet. Everywhere he went, he was encouraging Christians. And it says uh, in the book of Acts that he was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. Next up was Simeon called Niger. That word Niger translates to black. So he was Simon the black, leading us to believe that in all likelihood, he was from Africa, most likely northern Africa. Now, remember what we talked about last week. We'll put this map back on the screen for you. That church in Antioch was revolutionary. It was the first church, remember, that shared the good news with everyone, even with Greeks who had never stepped foot inside a church or synagogue. Uh, They had involved themselves with prostitution and drinking every weekend and all sorts of pagan revelry. And it said there in Acts 11 that men from Cyrene and Cyprus, Christian men, had come to Antioch and they were the ones who initiated spreading the gospel to these pagan Greeks in the city of Antioch. So when we're given this list of 
of leaders and told that he was called um, this man, uh, Simeon, called Niger. My best guess is he was from northern Africa. And then we get to the third guy. The third guy that's called out is a guy by the name of Lucius. And he was definitely from northern Africa because it says he was Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene, as we saw on that map, was there in northern Africa. Then we get to the fourth guy. His name is Manian. Uh, we're told that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And so Herod the Tetrarch is also known as Herod Antipas uh, in the New Testament. That was Herod the Great's son. And so he ruled there in the Galilee and some extending areas around Galilee. And so if he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, with Herod Antipas, there's a good chance that he was royalty. He was in the royal family. So it's safe to assume that Manian was an upper class uh, Christian. And if he was, in fact, in Herod's family, we know that Herod the Great was part Edomite from the descendants of Esau. And so he was probably part Edomite and part Jewish. So maybe a, a havesy there, similar to a Samaritan, just a couple different mixes in his in his uh, racial mix there. Finally, number five, Saul of Tarsus needs no introduction. Saul was a Jew from Tarsus who, of course, Jesus spoke to on the road to Damascus and had called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So look at this list here. Is this not a diverse group of leaders or, or what? You likely have two Kind of true blue Jews in the mix, Barnabas and Saul, the bookends, Barnabas uh, way up from the island of Cyprus and Saul up there in modern day Turkey from Tarsus. Okay, so true blue Jews from Cyprus and Tarsus. Then you have Simeon and Lucius, most likely uh, were African, uh, most likely black men, black Christians. And then you have Mannion, who was most likely upper class, probably a mixture of Jew and Edomite. And so you have this wonderful racial mix going on. I don't even like to use the word racial because we're all one race, but you know what I mean. An ethnic mix, a wonderful ethnic mix going on here. And people from these diverse geographic areas. You likely had individuals here from three different continents, from Africa, Asia and Europe, all together serving the Lord. Pretty interesting, I think. At least two continents, but possibly three. And so what an amazing thing this was that God pulled together this diverse group of leaders. But what was most remarkable about this leadership team wasn't their diversity, but their giftedness. That's what was most remarkable. Every one of these five guys had either the spiritual gift of prophecy or of teaching or of both. I love how Chuck Swindoll says that he writes... Antioch Community Church was the place to be. Not only did they have incredible spiritual growth, the staff was the century one dream team. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Mannion, and Saul. How's that for your starting lineup? Five choice prophets, preachers, and teachers par excellence. Each was called, gifted, devoted, and set apart for the Lord's work. That's exactly what the growing new church needed. The right leaders to lay a strong foundation. How wonderful it was. How wonderful it was. I think that's really well said. Working together, these five leaders were having the time of their lives. Revival is sweeping through Antioch and, and they have a front row seat for all of it. The church is growing. Lives are being transformed. Darkness is being pushed out of the city. 
So you would think that at some point the Antioch Christians were pulling each other aside as they were coming out of a worship service and they were saying to each other, this feels like heaven on earth. I never want it to end. But change was coming much sooner than many would have wanted. Change was coming. The church at Antioch was about to lose two fifths of its leadership team. Look what it says in verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Evidently, at some point in the past, God had relayed to Barnabas and Saul that their ministry in Antioch was temporary. It wasn't a final destination for them. It was a launching pad. Although Saul had already been leading Gentiles to Christ and discipling them in their new Christian faith, God's plan for Saul stretched past the borders of Antioch. So in verse 2, as the church leaders are worshiping God and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. We're not told how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Maybe he spoke through one of the prophets like he had done through Agabus a couple chapters earlier. Maybe God gave them a vision. Maybe God just impressed it on several of their hearts. We're not told for sure, but one thing is for sure. It was the Holy Spirit that was speaking. There was no doubt. In verse three, the church leaders and presumably the rest of the church with them, they do what any church family should do when they believe God is leading them to make a change. God is leading them to do something new and different. They did what we should do. They began to fast and pray even more. Notice that fasting is mentioned twice in these few verses. It's mentioned in verse 2. It's mentioned again in verse 3. And each time that it's mentioned, fasting is not mentioned by itself. In verse 2, the church was, particularly the leaders in that church, were fasting and worshiping. And in verse 3, the churches, they came together, they were fasting and praying. And so I really think that Bible scholar John Stott says it better than I could. He writes, For seldom, if ever, is fasting an end in itself. It is a negative action, abstinence or abstention from food and other distractions for the sake of a positive one, worshiping or praying. Let me read that again because that's pretty deep and just a, a short few lines. For seldom, if ever, is fasting an end in itself. It is a negative action, abstention from food and other distractions, For the sake of a positive one, worshiping or praying in scripture, God's followers fast and pray. They fast and worship. They fast and repent, but they don't just fast for fasting's sake. Fasting is a powerful spiritual discipline that involves temporarily denying our flesh. But as we deny our flesh, we must feed our spirit. Never forget that when you think about fasting. It's denying the flesh so that you can feed the spirit. The Antioch leadership team leads their church in a season of fasting and prayer. There seem to have been two purposes for this. Number one, the fasting and prayer confirms God's calling on Barnabas and Saul. And number two, the fasting and prayer prepares Barnabas and Saul for their mission that's up ahead. There were two purposes. After fasting and praying, the church family does what was for them probably one of the hardest 
things they had ever done. It was exciting, but it must have been heart wrenching. They had to let go of two of their top leaders on their leadership team and allow them to go out on the mission field and bless others without delay, without any grumbling or complaining. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. It probably didn't make complete sense to the Antioch Christians. After all, this church was doing so, so well under Saul and Barnabas's leadership. It's not like they were messing up. It's not like their effectiveness had waned and people were saying, you know what? I think your time has come. You need to go somewhere else. You know, we need some fresh leadership in there. It wasn't that at all. The church was at its pinnacle of effectiveness. And yet at the pinnacle of its effectiveness, God pulled them out and called them to go elsewhere to another mission. Most likely Barnabas and Saul had talked about where they were going amongst themselves, but I think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit didn't give them a detailed roadmap of where they were heading. It reminds me of Abraham. God just said, go. And Abraham went, not even knowing where exactly God was sending him to. God just said, pretty much, go that way. And Abraham obeyed. God did much the same thing with Paul and Barnabas. Go that way. And they obeyed, not knowing exactly how many cities they would go to or how long they'd be gone. It was a big change. And a big change had come to both Paul and Barnabas and to that church at Antioch. And I'm so thankful that the church at Antioch was smart enough and most importantly, obedient enough to receive God's command and walk in obedience, no matter how hard that change was. And that leads us to three life lessons that I want to share with you this morning. Life lesson number one. Christ calls us to be cheerful givers who give freely and generously to God's work. And the most generous givers don't wait to be asked to give. Isn't that true? Here in Acts 11, verses 27 through 29, I believe that we got to see something pretty amazing in the church. It was pretty amazing there in Acts 11. They sent off. Paul and Barnabas to do that great work. That was actually uh, in Acts 13, but it's an amazing thing. But remember what we did see in Acts chapter 11, a couple chapters earlier. They were doing God's work by sending Paul and Barnabas with an offering to Jerusalem. And I find what they did so inspiring. Most people, when hearing that a famine was coming, would have stocked up on supplies for themselves, right? Sound familiar? (laughs) Think back just a little over two years ago. What did the shelves at Target and Winco look like in March and April of 2020? When people heard that COVID had arrived, they were going to that store and they were stockpiling stuff because obviously every single household needs 150 rolls of toilet paper. They were stocking up for themselves. They were going crazy, throwing stuff in their cart, buying up stuff at every store. And many of our neighbors went without because people were greedy. People were greedy, thinking only about themselves and their own families. If the Antioch church had been around in 2019, what would they have done? 
Well, if they had been around in 2019, maybe a prophet would have said in the upcoming year, there's going to be a, a worldwide pandemic and, and many of the key items that we use are going to be pulled off of uh, supermarket and big box uh, store shelves and, and many people will be without. And so what would the Christians have done? They would have taken a collection there in late 2019 and delivered toilet paper to Christians in cities where they knew there was going to be a shortage in upcoming months. Well, perhaps Paul and the Antioch Christians had in mind what he would eventually write in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Amen. Life lesson number one is so important. We need to make sure that we're generous givers, giving to needs even before those needs are voiced. Life lesson number two, and this one we will pull from Acts chapter 13. Let's be willing to release gifted men and women without reluctance. And when you are called by God to go to a place you would never have expected to go, there's no need to be afraid of change. Change brings adventure, and adventure stretches your faith. All that spells growth. Faith and risk go hand in hand. Isn't that a wonderful quote from Chuck Swindoll? I just borrowed that from him. That's his wording, not mine. I thought it was so well said. Confession time. Quite often as a pastor, as someone has left the church, I found myself chasing after him and trying my best to convince them to come back. That's just been kind of my M.O. My knee-jerk reaction is to chase them down and try to talk them out of whatever caused them to leave and, and bring them back as quickly as possible. But the truth is, this isn't the only good church in the Victor Valley. Even if someone doesn't move out of the area, God may be calling them to another church in this community. How arrogant to think this is the only good Bible teaching church. There are a lot of them that faithfully preach God's word and serve Christ here in the Victor Valley. Sometimes God does call Christians to leave here and go somewhere else. And when he does, I need to be okay with that. You need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with that. Like Job, we need to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at whatever point God calls you or me to go, we need not be afraid. God knows what he's doing. If God says go, do what the church at Antioch did. Fast and pray with other Christians to confirm God's calling. And once you've prayed and confirmed God's will, do what he says. Go. Walk by faith, even when it's risky, because faith and risk go hand in hand. Finally, life lesson number three. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary he must become. I didn't read that very well, did I? <laughs> Let me say it again. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. That's a quote from Henry Martin, a missionary that served the Lord for many years. 
I thought that was very well said and very thought provoking. In the days ahead, God will call some of us to go. In the days ahead, I would guess God will call most of us to stay. But regardless of whether God calls you to go or to stay, there's something wrong if we are not using our location as a mission field. If you are growing in your faith and deepening in your relationship with Christ, but you're not impacting more people around you for Christ, there is something wrong. God has called you to be a missionary wherever he has you. Whether you're here in Victorville, whether you're in Hesperia or Apple Valley or Atlanto, whether you're watching this from your hometown outside of the Victor Valley, wherever you are, God has called you to be a missionary there. And if he calls you to go somewhere else, he calls you to be a missionary there as well. Remember what we read back a few chapters in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, early in the life of the Christian church there in Jerusalem, Peter and John were arrested because they were in the temple courts proclaiming Jesus Christ and they just wouldn't shut up. And so the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, they have them arrested and they start waving their fingers in John and Peter's faces and saying, shut up about this Jesus. I don't want you to speak his name anymore. And remember what Peter boldly said in verse 12 of Acts 4. He said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And the Sanhedrin's blown away because this guy had been a fisherman all of his adult life. And he was boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus in front of this council of 70. And in verse 13, the very next verse of chapter 4, we read of the Sanhedrin's reaction. It says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Friends, as you grow in your faith and you deepen in your relationship with Christ more and more, those who are around you should sense that there is something extraordinary about you and those around you should take note. That you have been with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. And we thank you for your powerful, life-giving word that you've given us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth and inspiring Peter and John to boldly stand for you. And inspiring Paul and Barnabas to boldly stand and speak for you. And Lord, I know that the Holy Spirit who spoke to that church in Antioch is the same Holy Spirit that speaks to your church today. Oh, Holy Spirit, speak to us and guide our steps. Let us know where you want us to go. Let us know when you want us to stay and give us the courage and give us, Lord, the, the effectiveness in doing your missionary work right here where you have us for the glory of God in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God has called us to be generous Christians and God has called us to be obedient Christians that share his word with those around us. Let's take our mission, mission field more seriously this week than we have in a long time. Seven days and counting until Resurrection Sunday. Let's invite our friends and family and allow them to hear the gospel and experience life change in Jesus name. God bless you as you serve and love and trust our Lord this week.